I really don't teach people to do Kegels in pelvic floor therapy. When we start working on strengthening, we work on more functional strengthening tasks. Like I'll just throw some out like a glute bridge, a squat, things like that. But if we really focus on exhaling during that contraction, remember our pelvic floor is going to recoil back up. So, which is a Kegel, a Kegel is pulling your pelvic floor up. Um, So that's going to happen naturally if you're taking good deep breaths. Your pelvic floor is going to move up and down with your breath if you're doing correct breath work. Hey there, my friends. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, and I want to welcome you back to another episode here on the Fit Mother Project podcast. Today, we're joined by one of my new friends, Dr. Christian McGinley, who is a physical therapist who specializes in pelvic floor health, as well as some pediatric orthopedics. And it's a really cool connection, actually. I got introduced to Dr. Christian through Catherine on our team. Um, They actually went back to playing some softball in college. So it was Mm -hmm. really cool to like have this connection be made because we just did a video series fairly recently on pelvic floor health where Dr. Christian came on and, and talked about what the pelvic floor is and why it's so valuable. And we want to bring her on for a longer form conversation to talk about a lot of these physical therapy concepts, particularly as it relates to pelvic floor health, but also anything else that will come out of this conversation. And my promise is this, if you listen to this convo, you are going to leave knowing more about your body and how it works on a very fundamental level. And you'll also be empowered with some stuff that you can do today to optimize your health as well as like preventatively into the future to have like good, greater overall well-being. So Dr. Christian, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Let's start with some intro and background on you. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your journey to getting into physical therapy and certainly to becoming a mom and being a pelvic floor focused physical therapist? How did this all start? Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, I knew I always wanted to work in the healthcare field, but wasn't exactly sure what that looked like. I thought it would be cool to work with athletes. Like, I feel like we all kind of feel that way growing up. If you grow up um, in sports yourself, which I was, like you said, I, I played college softball um, with Kat and I needed PT myself, just like an elbow injury in middle school, high school. And so I went to PT for the first time and I was like, well, this is kind of cool. You know, you get to be a doctor and work in healthcare, but you get to have fun. And if you've ever been in a PT clinic, at least a regular outpatient orthopedic clinic, it's typically a lot more fun than your typical doctor's office. The environment's a lot cooler. So that kind of sealed that deal for me in high school. And um, yeah, I kind of never looked back from there. I got my undergrad um, in science, went to PT school, but um, specializing in pelvic floor never crossed my mind. Like even all through (laughs) PT school. You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, It just wasn't... I mean, it's really picked up steam just in popularity in general in the last couple of years, but I've been out of school for six and a half years. So, you know, in school, we'll say six to nine years ago. Um, I mean, pelvic floor just wasn't as popular as it is now. So nobody in my class wanted to do it. We didn't, we didn't talk about it. We had one, um, we had one guest lecturer come in and give us like a one hour guest presentation on pelvic floor and pelvic floor therapy. And that was it for our whole three years of school was one hour. I think they put it in like our spine class. Um, which is crazy when we get into talking about the pelvic floor and what's inside the pelvis. It's like such a huge part of your spine and 
Um, it was like one hour of the whole semester class. So, um, yeah, so I wrote it off for a while. I knew I wanted to do orthopedics and pediatrics. So I graduate, I do that. I, I go work in a, a clinic where I can do both. You know, I'm working with athletes, I'm working with little kids. I'm also working with older adults, lots of surgeries, things like that. And, um, then I had my first kid still wasn't a pelvic floor therapist. That was about four and a half years ago. And then, um, I kind of had a I had a decently easy pregnancy, but a pretty challenging childbirth. Um, and I kind of learned afterwards, it probably took a year or two to fully like process what happened and all the things that could have gone differently um, to hopefully have made it better, um, you know, for planning future children. And um, that is what kind of led me down the pelvic floor path. And I was working at a clinic where we had an empty treatment room that wasn't being used. And so I was like, from a growth standpoint, I'm like, well, I guess one, this is interesting to me because I'm experiencing these symptoms. I have friends experiencing these symptoms and it would be super rewarding and cool to be able to help these people who are just like me. Um, and then we happened to have the space in the clinic I was already at, like, Hey, there's this unused room, like it's yours. If you take this class. And I was like, sweet, you know, this setup was was there for me. So I, you know, go through the certification. And I mean, once you offer pelvic floor services, you don't really look back because it's so there's very few pelvic floor therapists, especially in my part of town where, um, I mean, I just had a months long waiting list constantly. So even wow. if I wanted to see other things, I couldn't because there wasn't room on my schedule. And, and now I've kind of changed. I, I have a different job and I've changed the way I I take patients so I can see a little bit more of exactly what I want to see. But um, yeah, so it's pretty much been public course since then. That was like two and a half years ago. And um, I've even created some little like niches inside of pelvic floor because again, we might talk about this, but you could go a hundred different ways just with the pelvic floor, which is crazy to think about. So um, yeah, that's kind of where I am now. Nice. I appreciate that. And I have a couple questions based off yep. your story and what you shared. One is if you if you don't mind elaborating, what was so challenging during your actual birth and afterwards as it related mm -hmm. to your pelvic floor? I know there's some moms listening who probably had kids like yeah. a long while ago that may be yeah. experiencing echoes of that or even have kids at this stage who are about to be pregnant or going through that. And right. what happened with you in your body and what you experienced? Yeah. And like, let's yeah. get into that. Yeah. And I just want to preface by saying like everyone's story of childbirth is different and someone's version of like trauma during childbirth may be completely like not even be close to measuring up to someone else's childbirth trauma. So yeah. while things that I experienced, I do identify as like, this was not good. This was traumatic for me. It, it nowhere, you know, gets near some other real uh, traumatic childbirth experiences. And they were things I didn't even realize until a couple years later that I'm like, whoa, like, I can't believe that went that way and it didn't have to go that way. So first was, um, I just had a lot of like, it was a high intervention birth. And, um, now I've studied a lot about like low intervention, natural births. And so looking again, looking back, um, I got put on Pitocin as soon as I went to the hospital and that yeah. just started what we call like the cascade of interventions where the baby's yep. heart rate dropped and it was one dramatic thing after another. Well, now we have to do this. Now you have to put you on oxygen. Yeah. So that was like the labor part um, where it just seemed like this, it was like this huge medical event. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just here to give birth. It was like, we were chasing one symptom after another and I was having yeah. a side effect. So now you need this medication. 
And now his heart rate drops. You need to do this thing. And it was just constant. And then I, where my pelvic floor comes in is I pushed for over two hours on my back. And I had also gotten an epidural Mm-hmm. And I had no awareness of how to push. And we joke. Like I was even somebody that would joke, no one teaches you how to push. Everybody mm-hmm. everybody says that. And now I'm like, I can't believe I used to joke about that. Like I pride myself now on doing birth prep and teaching women how to push because it's, it is something you have to be able to do that a lot of women can't. And not only was I not good at it, I had no awareness of the lower half of my body with my epidural. That's the epidural, so, right? I mean, yeah. so yeah. And the Pitocin so actually pushing. increases pain, right? I mean, right. you get Pitocin to your... increase contraction, but you get more yeah. pain stimulus. Right. Because yeah. now your contractions are more intense. And so yeah. I'm pushing, but nothing's happening. And so mm-hmm. unbeknownst to me, they're like lowering my epidural. I, I didn't even realize that was a thing. So I was starting to feel things, which I do understand I, they were trying to give me more awareness, I guess. Like my mom knew this was going on the whole time, but I had no idea. She told me afterwards. And so I also wasn't prepared to feel pain because I was hadn't felt anything. And all of a sudden now it's super painful. Now I'm in pain trying to push and I push forever and ever and ever. And um, he finally came out, but it took forever. And luckily I managed not to tear, which is miraculous. But um, like the heaviness that I felt afterwards, the bleeding, the hemorrhoids, like from that much pushing. And, and we'll talk here about what, what your pelvic floor has to do to get a baby out. And um, it has to relax. And that's like the, you know, big part of pelvic floor therapy that we preach on is that everyone thinks they need to strengthen their pelvic floor when really most people, especially in pregnancy, need to learn how to relax their pelvic floor because mm-hmm. your pelvic floor is not what pushes the baby out. Like your uterus pushes the baby out and your mm-hmm. pelvic floor has to relax and get out of the way. And if your mm-hmm. pelvic floor is tense or tight, it's not going to let that baby through. And that's where like I found myself in trouble. And um, again, it wasn't until I started to uh, discover pelvic floor therapy. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like it was this light bulb moment of like, I should have, you know, all the way back to, I probably didn't need that Pitocin. Could I do this without an epidural? Could I have at least pushed in another position? That's a huge one for yeah, like, right. You on don't the have back to be on your back. The- best yeah. position for sure. Even with an epidural. <laughs> yeah. Even with an epidural, you don't have to give yeah. birth on your back, but you have to have a provider who supports that because most mm-hmm. OBs have just tell everyone to get on their back and they, you know, comply. And so if you ask to get on your side, they're like, what? Or the nurses aren't experienced with helping you get on your side. And so, um, you'll get told no. Um, and that's like a whole other, you know, mm-hmm. trouble. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, so it all came down to like learning that I had no idea how to relax my pelvic floor. Powerful. And so mm-hmm. I almost begs the question, people listening to this, we've been using the word pelvic floor a lot. Like what exactly is the pelvic floor? We have its concept, it's structures, it's muscles. Like what does it actually mean? Like what is the pelvic floor? What are we talking about? And explain the maybe the anatomy in the area so we all understand it better. Yeah, so inside of your pelvis, you can almost imagine it like a bowl. Um or a sling, the pelvic floor is like a group of muscles at the bottom of your pelvis. And all of your internal organs are supported by your um, pelvic floor. Now you have other structures inside your pelvis, you have ligaments and things like that. But um, that bowl of muscles, your bladder sits in there, your uterus, your rectum. um, And those muscles have to hold those organs up. And if those muscles are weak, or those muscles are really tight or tense, 
um, and maybe squeezing on those organs, that's where we kind of start to see issues because at the bottom of those muscles, you have your pelvic outlet and like your vaginal opening and your rectal opening. And um, there's no bony structures, you know, at the bottom of your pelvis holding those things up. So that's where we start to get symptoms when those, you know, horizontal um, muscles start to have some sort of dysfunction. Nice. So what are the common issues and conditions related to pelvic floor that you encounter in your practice? Why do people come in? What are they saying is wrong? Probably the, one of the most common diagnoses I'll see is urinary leakage. So um, this can be leakage, like what we call stress incontinence, which is um, leakage with like jumping, running, bending over, some sort of movement or like coughing, sneezing, something abrupt. Um, and then we have urge incontinence, which is where like the second you get an urge, like, oh my gosh, I have to go or you're going to you leak because you can't make it to the bathroom. So those two types of leakage are probably one of the most common things I see. Um, I also see a lot of pelvic pain. So, um, pain with intercourse or any sort of vaginal penetration or people will get pelvic pain because they have diagnoses like PCOS, endometriosis, um, getting pain in that pelvic region there. Like if you have pain because you have a cyst on your ovary, I'm not going to fix the cyst on your ovary, but a lot of times when you have a lot of pain, those pelvic muscles start to get really tight and tense sure. and then you're going like to get abdominal pain. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, while I'm not fixing the medical condition you have, I'm fi- starting to fix the pain component that, you know, all these muscles are trying are in this protective phase and we need to teach them to relax. And, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, a lot of pelvic pain with some of those things I described, um, diastasis recti, which is abdominal separation in pregnancy, which is extremely common. Um, and then probably the last most common would be like pelvic organ prolapse and prolapse. Mm-hmm. is not as of like a well known word, but it's when basically any of those pelvic organs that we talked about a moment ago, the bladder, the uterus, the rectum start to kind of drop down into the vaginal opening. Um, mm-hmm. and you'll get like that heaviness or pressure down there. Yeah. Um, there's four different grades of prolapse. So like grade one or two is, is, pretty non-serious and can be easily addressed with therapy. Um, basically the, that pelvic organ has sort of just shifted out of place. Like it's not, um, coming out of you, which it starts to at grades three and four. Um, but even like a grade three can be treated non operatively as well. Grade four, when that pelvic organ has like come out of your body, which is much more rare, it sounds terrifying, but it is uh, extremely rare. That is probably going to be more, you'll probably get therapy first, but probably end up getting like a surgical repair. Got it. And so what's the typical age of people that you're seeing coming into see you in clinic? Like, yeah, what, what, how, how old are people? What's the range uh, for any of those yeah. issues? Like the incontinence, yeah, yeah. you know, prolapse, mm-hmm. pain and intercourse. I mean, there's a pretty big range I have. It's becoming a little bit more common for people to realize that pelvic floor issues exist outside of pregnancy and postpartum. So I have seen like early twenties women with, um, like vaginismus pain with intercourse that have never had kids before. And the reasons why it could be like cultural, um, there's a lot of different, um, reasons for trauma, abuse, people can have pain with intercourse that have never had kids Mm -hmm. before, never been pregnant. Um, so I would say like early twenties, even though, Again, pelvic pain does exist in ages younger than that. I just haven't. It's like um, more specific classes and certifications. Um, so I'd say like early 20s. And then obviously the pregnant postpartum population is like the bulk of my um, 
clientele. So like maybe 20 to 40, if I had to just ballpark, Mm -hmm. but then I also see a ton of women who were five, eight, 10, 15 years postpartum and pelvic floor therapy wasn't a thing when they had kids and they come to me and they're like, you know, I've been leaking since my 15 year old was born. And I just thought like, this is what happens when you have kids. And, um, but there is so much you can still do about it. And thankfully now pelvic floor therapy is gaining popularity and that, you know, I want women to realize even if you're years postpartum, you can still address these issues and if they're not too far gone. And, um, so yeah, I will see, I've, I've even seen, I mean, I've seen elderly women too, for leakage, weak pelvic floors, constipation, things like that. And, um, is it a postpartum issue if their child is 50 years old? Like, I mean, you're postpartum forever, right? So maybe, yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, the I would say the bulk is like that um, early 20s to middle age, like fairly recently postpartum or pregnant. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Dr. Ray. I want to quickly pause this episode to thank you so much for listening to this Fit Mother Project podcast. I am just blown away at how amazing this podcast has become, all the powerful stories, all the great expert interviews. And I am so grateful for you for tuning in and being here with everything we're creating here at the Fit Mother Project. And I just wanted to pause to acknowledge you and thank you again for listening. Please keep listening and tuning in to all the great stuff we're doing here at the FMP. Let's get back to today's episode. Are there any misconceptions or stigmas associated with pelvic floor health that you'd like to address before we get into some of the treatment options and stuff? Um, you mean with pelvic floor therapy in general or just the pelvic floor? Yeah. Yeah, both. Yeah. I, either way, like probably mm-hmm. pelvic floor first because we haven't talked too much about therapeutic approaches yet. But like, yeah, any misconceptions? I mean, you you talked about the idea that hey, people think they need to strengthen the pelvic floor, but actually, in yeah. many cases, it's relaxing. I think that was a really strong yep. misconception. Is there anything else you think is, yep. um, or even a stigma with it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, just to elaborate on the um, having to gain pelvic floor strength versus learning to relax it. Um, you know, what, what I like to tell patients is just because your pelvic floor is tight or tense does not mean that it's strong. And so, yes, you need to learn to relax your pelvic floor, but you also, once we learn to relax it, then we will train you to strengthen it. And so there is always probably going to be a strength component, but the biggest misconception is that's typically not the first priority. The mm-hmm. first thing most people need to be able to do is relax their pelvic floor. Then we can learn to strengthen it. Um, I think another thing is that it's how much breathing plays a role and your core plays a role in your pelvic floor. Like, you know, we, again, we say pelvic floor is like, it's an isolated thing. Um, because you know, I'm a pelvic floor specialist, but I want people to know that, you know, in pelvic floor therapy, we're looking at the whole body, like your core, your back, your diaphragm, your ability to stand on one leg and like your single leg balance, how stable your ankle is. All of that plays a role in the position of your pelvis and is going to play a part in how well your pelvic floor works. And Mm so, um, we name this one body part, but really we're looking at everything. So many parts of your body play a role in it. And so, know that, you know, if you go seek out pelvic floor therapy, if you go see somebody that is only like focusing in on your pelvic floor, then it should probably go find someone that's going to give you like a more holistic approach. Um, yeah. cause it's really so many more factors than just what's going on inside your pelvis. That's a good answer. And I also think there's a stigma, not as a stigma, but things that we don't see or associate as the important muscles, meaning the ones we see all the time, our legs, our glutes, our right. arms, our shoulders. Like you just don't think of all these unsung heroes that are working internally <laughs> to control even just your ability to 
urinate, defecate, walk, balance, right. breathe properly. So it's like the invisible stuff is sometimes really important. All right. So yep. how do we how do we begin to what are some of the primary treatment methods we do to help correct pelvic floor issues? Like what's a generalized yeah. process of a yeah. treatment plan? And you can even use a, a couple different cases if it helps you explain it through the context of cases. Um, but yeah. however you want to go about that. Okay. Yeah. So I'll just start by saying what like a normal initial evaluation looks like for me, like what we're looking at and how we use that to decide the treatment approach. So like I just kind of stated, you know, we're I like to do what I call an external exam. We're going to look at your posture, watch how you breathe. And we'll do this in sitting and standing and lying down. Look at your hip range of motion. Look at your trunk range of motion. Do a few strength tests of your core, a few strength tests of your hips. Um, and that gives us the idea of like what's going on in those bigger muscle groups, like you just said, like how are your quads and your glutes firing? Um, and then we'll do, of course, you know, with consent and as long as the patient's appropriate, an internal pelvic floor exam. And what that's going to do, basically, I just use like a gloved finger and I'm feeling for pain. I'm testing your ability to contract your pelvic floor muscles and then your ability to relax those pelvic floor muscles. So basically those three things, the presence of pain and then your ability to contract and relax, plus the external stuff I checked right before that, that's going to give us a pretty good place to start. So um, a lot of the main things we're working on um, is we're going to start with breathing. I like to teach people how their um, breath work connects to their pelvic floor and how you can use your diaphragm um, in your core muscles to help your pelvic floor move up and down. So contracting and relaxing your pelvic floor is not just about your ability to Kegel or your ability to like bear down and relax, but you can use your breath. If you take a big enough breath in it, that air has two places to go. It's going to go out and expand your belly or it's going to go down (laughs) and it's going to push on your pelvic floor. And that's in a good way. Like if you take a big, deep breath in, you can naturally relax your pelvic floor with every breath you take. I feel mine. Like, you know, like (laughs) really deep breath. At the end of that, you do feel like the bowl of the pelvis relaxes at the very end of it to accommodate the expansion. I think when people are listening to this, like try to take a couple deep breaths and like put your awareness in your pelvis and see what you experience. Yeah. And it's good if you're, if you're sitting, um, because you have that feedback from the chair you're sitting in. Sometimes, you know, having that downward pressure and you can feel it into the chair. Um, the key is to make sure you're breathing with your belly. A lot of times I'll have people take a big deep breath and their chest expands and their belly sucks Mm -hmm. in. So they're filling their Mm -hmm. chest with air. They're not filling their belly with air. So that air is only expanding out through their chest. So that air has to make it down to your belly, expand your belly out, and it's going to push down on your pelvic floor. So I, I, a cue I give patients is to have them put their hands like kind of on their belly and their rib cage where you can kind of feel um, your rib cage like with your thumbs and then your fingers are over your belly. Fill that with air and then try to get that awareness of how your pelvic muscles are kind of pushing into the chair that you're sitting on. Um, that is how you can start relaxing your pelvic floor. And then just like how the inhale pushes down on the pelvic floor, when you let that air out, the recoil is going to pull it up. And so that's a a contraction essentially. And so I, I really don't teach people to do Kegels in pelvic floor therapy. When we start working on strengthening, we work on more functional strengthening tasks. Like I'll just throw some out, like a glute bridge, a squat, things like that. But if we really focus on exhaling during that contraction, remember our pelvic floor is going to recoil back up. So, which is a Kegel, a Kegel is pulling your pelvic floor up. 
Um, so that's going to happen naturally if you're taking good yeah. deep breaths. Your pelvic floor is going to move up and down with your breath mm-hmm. if you're doing correct breath work. And so I really, really hammer that down the first few sessions. And then people realize they don't have to think so hard about like moving their pelvic floor. Because it is yeah, a nice Yeah, they're thinking thing about the motion of, and the breathing. Yeah. Right. Which is easier to figure out than like always having awareness of your pelvic floor, which I want you to have. But being, you don't, you know, I, I like to say the example, like you don't, uh, when you're walking, you don't kick your leg out and you're like quad contract. Like you don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't do like single, yeah. like you don't have to tell your body to contract certain muscles. So why would I tell you when you go pick up your baby, Kegel your pelvic floor? Like, no, <laughs> we don't, we don't do those, yeah. but we should be taking big deep breaths. So I like to say, when you pick up your baby off the floor, exhale, let that air out. Don't bend down and then hold your breath as you pick that child up off the floor. Um, so if you give that cue, then all the right things just automatically turn on and you don't have to consciously contract your pelvic floor. Well said. And I, what immediately came to mind is I'm thinking here that the fit mothers that are listening to this, that are doing exercise and doing some strength training, this is just another reason to really get good at breathing properly as you do motions like squats, deadlifts, et cetera, because you're going to engage that pelvic floor. It probably stabilizes the spine and makes you stronger, right? When it's working in this way, but either way, more conscious awareness of your breathing in all strength training exercises, regardless if you self-identify of having some pelvic floor issue is going to strengthen and keep your pelvic floor healthy. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay. Yeah, nice. I like to say you can make any exercise, a pelvic floor exercise or a core exercise if you're breathing correctly. Mm-hmm. Like if because your pelvic floor will engage no matter if you're doing an arm exercise. Like I'll do dumbbell stuff with someone's arms if they want to learn how to, you know, some people get leaking when they're doing upper body exercises. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can make any exercise, a core exercise or a core or pelvic floor exercise if you're breathing correctly. Okay. What, let's talk about the sexual health aspect of this. So maybe someone, I don't know, may or may not have pelvic floor dysfunction that they would say, but mm-hmm. what can people do to have like really good vaginal health, sexual mm-hmm. health and blood flow? Like, are there exercises like the Kegels? Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm just caught in the old, like we should do these, but like, <laughs> what, what, what do we, what can we say on the sexual aspect of the pelvic floor and just overall good health and vitality there? Yep. Yep. Again, you know, with, um, on the theme of relaxing our pelvic floor, same thing with intercourse. If those muscles are really tight and tense, that canal is going to narrow. And as you can imagine with intercourse, you don't, you wouldn't want that. That's going to be painful. Same with getting a baby out. The pelvic floor muscles kind of have to move out of the way to get the baby out. Your pelvic floor muscles have to relax and expand to have intercourse. That's not painful. And so same thing is we want to work on that pelvic floor relaxation, which you're going to do with your breathing. Some of my favorite um, pelvic floor relaxation strategies for um, people that have pain with intercourse, yoga has a huge overlap with pelvic floor therapy. Lots of poses like cat-cow, child's pose, frog pose, happy baby, all of those poses that kind of open up your hips um, or move your pelvis a little bit. I'll have people do them slow and practice those big, deep breaths like get down into child's pose, practice taking a breath that fills your whole belly. It should fill your rib cage and your back with air and try to get a little bit of that awareness. Like see if you can push your pelvic floor down towards your feet a little bit as you take that breath. So practicing that breathing in those positions is even more beneficial than just practicing the breathing sitting in a chair. Um, So yeah, lots of yoga type stretches. There are also things that you can buy like dilators or pelvic wands that are like over-the-counter devices that can help to stretch those muscles. So same thing, like if you came to pelvic floor therapy, 
with that digital exam that I do, if you have a tender spot or a spot where the muscles are really tight, we can do a little like trigger point release where I'm kind of helping to stretch out this sore spot for you while you breathe through it. Um, A pelvic wand or a dilator can mimic that um, where it's either helping you open the vaginal canal or the pelvic wand is a little bit more like, um, again, like that trigger point, like find a sore spot with the end of that pelvic wand and get in a relaxed position, practice that breathing, that pelvic floor relaxation while you're using an external device to kind of stretch it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those are those are kind of the main things we'll do for um, something like pain with intercourse. Nice. Have you, have you seen people have like some deep emotional releases associated yeah. with this area? And the reason I ask is like, this is like the base of your spine and obviously like the sacred spot through which babies come intercourse happens. It's a place where people have subconscious tension. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if the process of even relaxing and and creating a healthier pelvic floor can lead to like some emotional releases for people if they're holding on to Mm -hmm. some stuff. I'm fishing a little bit, but I don't know if that's that's true. Yeah, I've totally seen that. I've definitely had some tears during, um, an internal exam. And of course, you know, I want to be like, Oh my gosh, is everything okay? Like, I want to make sure it's not anything I'm doing. And most of the time it's not, it's, you know, some sort of like traumatic history that they have, whether it's a trauma, a traumatic childbirth, um, or some sort of like sexual abuse that is, I unfortunately much more common than we would like to say, but, um, any form of sexual abuse in that area is just extremely sensitive. And a lot of times that's why they're coming to see me because that's yeah. their history. And now they're like in their twenties or their thirties. And they're like, I've never been able to have a sexual partner again. It's too painful. Now, 100% of those people should also probably be getting some sort of like mental health counseling as well. It's not just me. Yeah. Um, that is not my specialty. Like I always tell those clients, like I can work on the orthopedic side of it. I can help you relax those muscles, but any, you know, self-talk you need to do to overcome that. That's I, I don't claim to be a professional and speak to that, but it is present more than it's not. Um, mm-hmm. And even I've, I've had a lot of situations too, where I'm treating people for pain with intercourse and our questionnaire that people get before their first appointment is pretty detailed. So I'll get a lot of answers to things that like I'm going into their first appointment and I know if they have an abuse history and so a lot of times, you know, if that questionnaire didn't exist, it might be questions we didn't get to, but I'm, they might say something like, oh my gosh, you asked that question on there. And I didn't even, I was wondering why that was even related. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm starting to explain what we're going through and what we're going to do and how the pelvic floor works, it, like they have this light bulb moment, like, oh, that's why you asked that. I didn't even know those two things were related. So a lot of times people have trauma that's caused them or something like that, that's caused them pelvic floor tension. And they don't even realize till they're meeting me for the first time. And I'm explaining all those possible connections. Yeah. Good answer. Question about success stories related to urinary urgency or incontinence. Cause I know that's mm-hmm. something that a lot of ladies naturally have postpartum. Yep. Like if it's, is it something that can like more or less like go away. And I say go away mm-hmm. by like 50% better, 75% better if you begin to do some exercises. Yeah. So I love to talk about this from like the urge incontinence standpoint, because urge incontinence a lot of times doesn't have as much to do with your um, pelvic floor and bladder health. I mean, it can it very much can, but a lot of time, times it has to do with your habits. And if you are consistently, so let's say, let's, let's use an example of somebody that urinates every hour. Um, your body tells you you have to pee every hour. We say normal voiding is two and a half, every two and a half to four hours. So 
And out one, every hour is pretty frequent. Again, this is during the daytime. Every hour is pretty frequent. So if you are somebody that goes every hour, and the second you get the urge, you go to the bathroom, an hour goes by, you feel the urge. Second you feel it, you go to the bathroom. Your bladder now thinks every hour your bladder is full. So you're even though in that hour, there's a good chance your bladder's only filled up maybe, I'm just ballparking numbers, but maybe 25%. Well, if you go to the bathroom every time your bladder's at 25%, your brain now thinks 25% is full because it's never actually been full. And so a lot of times it's just these brain habits. So I I teach people um, how to delay those intervals, just different breathing strategies. As soon as you get an urge, try these five things and see if it buys you 10 minutes and reassess. Okay, do I still have to go? The answer might be no, which is great if you're if you now are able to put it off two hours, if you do those things and you reassess and you're like, do I still have to go? And the answer is yes. I tell patients like, that's okay. You still bought yourself five minutes doing those things. And I'll take that as a win. So we, we do a lot of these like brain drills where it's like, okay, when you get the urge, think about this, do diaphragmatic breathing, you know, get up and walk around, do these things that take, uh, take a few minutes. And if you do that every single time, like that five minutes will turn into 10 minutes. The next week yeah. will turn into 20 minutes. The next thing you know, in a couple weeks, or excuse me, like a couple months, probably you're going every two hours instead of every hour. So nice. I love talking about that because that doesn't require a lot of exercise. Now there's yeah. a scenario in which there is a muscular component to that. A lot of urge incontinence is because of weakness. But if you have that weakness and then you're going constantly and now your brain is just on overdrive thinking you have to pee all the time, you got to work on the brain part first, and then we can address some muscle strength issues. Um, and then from the leakage standpoint, I mean, gosh, there are so many different scenarios of this and where, um, you know, let's, we can talk about the, the woman who maybe just leaks with like exercise. So you can live most of your normal life and you're like, gosh, when I want to go jump on the trampoline with my kids, or I'm trying to get back into shape and I want to go for a run. Like, I think that's the biggest chunk of of women that I end up seeing is, um, it's not ruining their life, but it's, they might have yeah, these like, goals. It can be embarrassing and yeah. inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of there and it might be preventing them from like the fitness goals that they want to do. And, and that's where like, you can come see me and I like, you know, I, I think I can generally teach people, um, some good habits and some good exercises you know, I would say maybe like two to three months and then you're sometimes might not be a hundred percent better, but now you know exactly what to do to make this go away. But I'd like to say in the time that you're seeing me and maybe like six to 10 visits max, you are doing about 75% better. Cause a lot of it nice. is like, go home and do this, go home and do this. Mm-hmm. And that's going to get your symptoms down. And then that little bit of lingering, those little bit of lingering symptoms, you know, um, might still stick around for a little bit, but in that time, I've given you the tools, um, to basically continue to work on it yourself, but you know exactly what to do. So, um, I think even if it's been years that like, again, like your multiple years postpartum, or this has been going on for 15 years, I don't think that worsens your chance of not improving or makes it hard. I don't, I don't think that makes it any harder to get better. I've seen, middle-aged women who are many years postpartum that get better just as quickly. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause a lot of this is like neurologic patterning and, and mm-hmm. getting it back corrected. And what's fascinating about what you shared is like literally someone could have that every hour on the urge kind of scenario, unless you correct the neurological <laughs> pattern, you could carry that with you for like mm-hmm. 
the rest of your life or fix it through retraining. So there seems like there's a lot of promise to doing the work. Now, I'm going to preface this next bit with the fact that we do have detailed video breakdowns of you with Catherine on our Fit Mother YouTube channel. Um, that's going to be released very soon. If it's not released already right now, you can go to Fit Mother Project YouTube channel and check it out. Going through different exercises, relaxation techniques, strengthening techniques, so people can follow along and do it. Yeah. While we're here on the podcast, though, I would love for you to describe maybe a couple different things that people can do at home that they can maybe mm-hmm. do in the morning or tack on with an exercise or a workout before or after that gets some of these benefits that we've kind of discussed and is also easy for someone to understand. Yep. Um, so again, I'll, I'll speak about the pelvic floor relaxation and then the pelvic floor strengthening. So if you're going to prioritize doing one before the other, always work on the relaxation first. So that's, I, I kind of named some of these things earlier, but my favorites are those, um, kind of like yoga pose stretches. Um, so combining that diaphragmatic belly breathing with like a cat cow or a child's pose, frog pose and happy baby, those four are probably my favorite. Um, so some combination of those, um, before a workout, after a workout, just throughout your day, especially if you have like a desk job and maybe you're sitting all day, that's going to kind of get your pelvis moving a little bit. Um, combining that with that diaphragmatic breathing. Um, and then when you're ready to work on strengthening, I really, really like to utilize, um, like elastic loop bands and then also, um, a ball, like a squishy kid's ball you can use to squeeze between your knees. If you're squeezing that ball between your knees with various exercises, that's also going to help turn your pelvic floor on. So again, we talked about how that exhale pulls your pelvic floor up. If you're squeezing your knees together and turning your adductors on, your adductors attach right into your pelvis. So that's also helping to turn your pelvic floor on without you having to do a conscious Kegel. And then if you put a band around your knees and you do different exercises with that band around your knees and you're pulling apart on it, it's turning your glutes on. And so you can do all these exercises that are for, you know, X, Y, and Z. If you add the ball on the band, it's getting you extra pelvic work. Um, so example, it's good to do both, right? It's good to squeeze the ball in and maybe do glute bridges, but maybe even external and have the band on the legs and do glute bridges too then. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So like glute bridges are a great one where I'll do some glute bridges with a ball squeeze and then we'll do some glute bridges with the band around your knees where you're pulling apart. Um, same with like a squat. We just think of doing like, put your feet hip width apart and do a squat. Um, you can do that with the ball and the band, do a narrow squat with the ball squeeze, do a wide squat where you're pulling the band apart. Now we're working all those different pelvic muscles in a three dimensional way. Whereas just a regular squat, it's kind of just working in one direction. So um, no lateral those, motion. Yeah. Yeah. When you add those external forces from the ball and the band, everything's working a little bit differently. So, you know, do some with nothing, some with the ball and some with the band. Um, yeah, that's another thing I really like. And it takes one exercise and it turns it into three exercises. So nice. Um, bang, yeah. bang for Efficiency. your buck. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So how do you envision the future of public floor health, both in terms of treatment options and public awareness like where are things Ooh, going you this. know based on I you as a question. professional <laughs> uh i love this question i oh my gosh okay so i hope that in the future of pelvic health like all pregnant and postpartum women it essentially becomes i don't want to say a requirement because a requirement yeah. sounds like strict but it's just a part of the the pregnant and postpartum process like you go to your 6 week follow up everyone should just have a 6 week public floor PT visit. Um, mm-hmm. and you might not need anything and, and great for you, but 
I think that there are always things you can work on, whether you've had a vaginal birth or a C-section, even if you're asymptomatic, you feel fine. Um, if you if you want to get back to any level of activity and picking up your baby is a level of activity. So we're all getting back to something. Um, you should learn proper breathing mechanics and you should learn how to engage your core. This can avoid back pain, you know, other things like it's not just pelvic floor issues. Um, so that's one where there are like, it's just the norm that in as part of being pregnant and postpartum six months is six, uh, pelvic floor therapies just woven into like your prenatal postpartum care. And then one of the other big things is that there, and this is starting to become a thing that there will be pelvic floor therapists in hospitals, like in the labor and delivery unit, kind of working as like, if you think of like a doula who helps you with like different yeah. birth positions and stuff. Um, again, I made that, you know, I talked, I talked about that, my birth story with my first, that joke about how we all, you know, say nobody ever taught us how to push, but a lot of times like the nurses in there, they also don't know how to teach you. They're only doing what they've learned. And I, I've never been to nursing school, so I can't speak to this, but like they were telling me I wasn't allowed to make noise and that I like was supposed to hold my <laughs> breath. And now I've learned that the right. opposite is true. So I'm like, yeah. but they're only telling me what they know. So that there, I want there to be more like collaboration, like whether there's public floor PTs in labor and delivery rooms or like public floor PTs in like um, educating labor and delivery nurses, things yeah. like that. And then same with postpartum, like, you know, once you're in the hospital, like the pediatrician comes in and they do all this stuff, but nobody comes in for the mom, except for they like poke your belly and do all the stuff that hurts. Um, but have like a PT that comes in and like helps to teach you how to like safely get out of bed, especially if you've had a C-section, like um, different breathing mechanics, how to use the bathroom effectively because constipation is super common postpartum and they're just like, here, mm -hmm. take this colace and hope it helps. But yeah. oh my gosh, on like a fresh C-section scar or a fresh vaginal birth, then being constipated, you're now straining and you could, and you maybe you've developed hemorrhoids and childbirth and all these yeah. things and now you can't go to, now you can't have a bowel movement and you don't you don't know what to do besides hold your breath and strain it's like yeah. you're just gonna add to it so to have somebody coming in and teaching you all those things if that was also like a required part of the postpartum process like that would be a dream <laughs> dang i mean i i hear the significance of what you're saying and to think that like the entire continuation of the human species is contingent upon women going through this process is beautiful process. <laughs> and like, it's going to happen like for the rest of time that humans are going on, that it would make all the sense in the world to have this level of detail, education, care, where there's a clear gap, like right there mm -hmm. in the spot. And I hope that your career legitimately has some impact in, mm -hmm. in doing that along with the other pelvic floor professionals. Like it's really mm -hmm. cool. Like I see the promise of what that could be like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I I'm excited to be a part of it, even though it just seems like it's kind of in its early stages of being popular. But um, I think that there's a lot more work that we can do, and that it's being done. I mean, there's a big group of people out there who's extremely passionate about this, and so I'm excited to be a part of it. Nice. Well, this was truly an awesome conversation. Like we covered a lot of ground in <laughs> around 40 minutes talked a lot about stuff. And I want to urge people who enjoy this and would like some demos to head over to YouTube to be able to see you in action and go through some of these routines because it was really awesome to, to be able to film with you and do all that. And then I also want to um, invite people to connect with you on social media and, and just like mm -hmm. be able to follow you and learn more and spread this information. So where can people find you? 
Um, yeah, so I post a lot on my Instagram. My Instagram is at motherhoodempowered.dpt. Um, I like to post a lot of different videos, different exercise ideas. Um, I talk a lot about breathing and kind of the foundations of everything we talked about today. So, yeah. Nice. And if you are watching or listening to this episode on our Fit Mother Project website, where the show notes are hosted, there will be links direct uh, direct there, but it's motherhoodempowered.dpt on Instagram mm-hmm. and you can find Dr. Christian. So thank you for your time and for the education. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey there, my friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Fit Mother Project podcast. If you love what you heard, I have a favor to ask you. Please consider taking 60 seconds right now to leave us a rating and review on our podcast. Leaving us a review is super quick. It only takes a minute and it's so, so helpful to us as it really boosts this podcast to reach more people who need this information and this message. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, you can leave us a star rating and review. If you're watching on YouTube, you can hit the like button and leave us a comment. Overall, I truly appreciate you being with us here on the podcast. On behalf of me and my entire Fit Mother Project team, we truly feel honored and grateful to support you and your family on your journey to fantastic health. I thank you for your support of this podcast and of this mission. Also, if you're interested in joining our Complete Fit Mother program and becoming an official member of our community, you can visit our website, fitmotherproject.com. And on the Fit Mother site, you'll be able to see our Complete Fit Mother program along with our online store with the best supplements designed for busy moms. And you'll also find a ton of free resources like recipes, workouts, meal plans, and more. God bless you and your family. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll catch you on the next episodes of the Fit Mother Project podcast.